It is true that it's cold outside, but we're warm in here and warm in our hearts as we share together and we thank the praise team for the wonderful music that they've led us in to praise and give glory and honor to our God. And that's why we're here this morning and we need to thank our Lord for his grace to us. On this Valentine's Day, there is no greater love than that a man give his life for his friend and Jesus died on the cross for our sins to give his life for us. And that's a wonderful, wonderful understanding and a deep and profound cherishing hope and promise and, and treasure for the Christian that we have such a Savior who gave his life for us. And we're so thankful for that. A couple of uh, uh, ministry moments is that one, next Sunday, we're planning a baptismal service and we hope that you will uh, join with us and we look forward to baptizing the good Lord willing, uh, both Alexandra Matney and Serenity Sawyer and we're excited for them. And uh, in fact, we're going to be focusing all on baptism and I'll be speaking on five truths about baptism that we learn from our Savior, Jesus' baptism himself by John the Baptist. And so you'll want to come as we focus on baptism and what that means. It's going to be an exciting time uh, next Sunday, and it will be warmer, we know. Um, and we do have a heater in the pool back there, which we'll check to make sure. There was actually a time that it was like this in Cincinnati, and I was pastor of the Forest Park Baptist Church, and two army uh, soldiers, uh, a man and his wife, uh, were to be baptized and the heater broke. And it was like zero degrees outside and that baptismal pool was cold. But you know what? They went, what did the army, Urab, did they say, or something like that, or whatever. The army said, go ahead. And they got in and I baptized them, but it was cold. We'll make sure the heater is on uh, next Sunday uh, for us. But it's a great symbol and testimony of faith, and you'll want to be here to participate and uh, share in that great celebration. So um, we've also been doing a series of sermons on um, the essential church, and I started back in actually the 1st of January on the, the Essential Church uh, simplifies its organization so it can be rough and tough and ready to go, you know, at a moment's notice in, in the work of our Savior. And then a couple of Sundays ago, we talked about the Bible deepen the content of the Essential Church is, is founded on the Word of God. This Sunday, I'm going to talk about expect, focusing on being essential out of the book of 1 Corinthians, and then following our baptismal service, I'm going to be talking about the essential church and multiplying and what that means. So I do encourage you to come. I believe that we do have those other sermons up on the uh, Facebook or the website. If you wanted to go back and check those out, uh, you can look at those, and I do encourage you to do that because the question is, Will Providence Baptist Church be essential? There have been people who've said churches are not essential in this COVID virus time, but we're trying to say, yes, we are essential, but then understand and investigate how churches are essential and what that means. So today we're going to look at expectations 
Um, and we're going to go through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, it's the book right after Romans. It's the first letter that Paul, uh, apparently, he, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Apparently the first. He may have written other ones, but we have this one. And we're going to be looking at chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. I'm going to do it a little bit different. Instead of reading the whole of it right now, we're going to take it in three parts, and we'll read those sections in three parts so that it becomes maybe a little bit more uh, clear and a little bit more memorable uh, to us. Once I was digging in Israel, I, I did spend some time teaching archaeology, and I've been on 15 archaeological digs in my life in Israel, and we would go and um, spend about six weeks, four to six weeks in Israel digging at various sites, and I've had the pleasure to dig at uh, Tel Dan and Tel Hatzor. These are places mentioned in the Bible, Gezer. And even out on the uh, fringes of the desert in Jordan, we dug a little site out there. And I can't remember exactly which place we were, but the students that we would bring over, we would get down and dirty. We would literally throw away the clothes that we had at the end of the dig because they would be totally encrusted with dust and dirt. And we, we just would get down in the dirt and, and just not throw things around. We would dig very carefully and, and very systematically, and we would participate. And I remember hauling more wheel buckets full of dirt than I could ever want to think about. And we actually had this game where we would pick up buckets of uh, dirt, and the macho guys would see if they could carry four buckets full of dirt in each hand as you take it to be sifted, you know, a big macho guys would do that, and, and it would be a lot of hard work. We, we had goofas, which are buckets made out of um, old uh, tires, old uh, the rubber tires, and one day I'll have to bring in my goofa and show you the goofa I have. But all of it was a lot of work. So we're in, the, in, in this square down deep, and one of the students, I can't actually remember who it is, just was, was just thinking, you know, when you get down and you're working, you kind of think, and the student said, you know what? Archaeology is not a non-participatory sport. Wow, okay. What profound statement. Archaeology, what we were doing, is not a non-participatory sport. I thought about that for a while. What does that mean? Well, they could have said that archaeology is a participatory enterprise because you can't, get, you can't do archaeology unless you get dirty, right? You can't sit in your armchair. Those we call armchair archaeologists who theorize and think. But the real, real archaeologists are the one who get down and get the dirt under their fingernails, you know, get there. I would take like 20 pairs of socks. <laughs> And I'd wear a pair of sock until it got so dirty. I didn't want to do any laundry. So I just throw it away. You get dirty. You participate in archaeology. I kind of think, thought about that yesterday as I was reading through this text and uh, planning this sermon, um, which is based on Tom Rainer's book, Essential Church. But the idea is that sometimes we think church is a non-participatory activity. In other words, we come and get ministered to when we go home. But I don't think God planned it that way. 
In a way, God planted it for us to work hard, to get down and dirty in the ministry aspect of the church, in the growth aspect of the church. And if you become a church member, and if your church, you want your church to be an essential church, you cannot ignore the fact that you, as an average church member, have to participate in some way. And the question then arises, well, how do we participate? What really are the expectations of church membership? We're going to be baptizing Alexandra and Serenity, and we've talked to them, and they've come, and they've professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But what does that mean, then, to be baptized into the membership of the church? Because uh, I'm kind of old-fashioned theologically, and I believe that baptism is the entrance into the membership of the church. It's your testimony, and we'll talk more about that next Sunday. But what are the expectations? What is it that we are supposed to do as a church member? Just show up on Sunday morning, cold as it may be, sit in the pew, go home, you know, say, oh, that was a nice sermon, or have roast preacher for supper, or whatever. You just, what are we supposed to do? And that's a very, very good question, because the churches haven't always figured that out. Not only that we haven't always figured it out, we've not been able to communicate it very well from time to time. Because what does it mean to be a church member? And that's a very good question. This is one of the things that Paul addressed to the church at Corinth. They were divisive. They had strife and struggles. They, they were torn apart by egos and strife. And Paul had to talk to them about koinonia, about body life. And he wanted to share with them how important they are in the church. God put them in the church and he talked about how to expect and to understand the functioning of a church. And he did this by raising up the, the image or the metaphor of, of a body. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Before chapter 13, everybody goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's the love chapter. You know, it's, it's Valentine's Day. It's a love chapter, everything. But before Paul could get there, he had to talk about how we work together how we function together, what the expectations of a church were. And he used this imagery of the body in a, in a very powerful, important way to suggest that we work together. Not that we just exist as different parts of the body, but for the body to function properly, we have to acknowledge that we're all part of the body, that we may be diverse and different and have different functions to pr uh, produce or to work on, but Paul is trying to tell them that this is a mystery, this is a wonderful thing that God did by giving us the church. You know, we could have, if we think about it, an individual relationship with God. We would, we would uh, kind of define that as being a lone ranger. Do you know that this circle TV that, that we get on the antenna is now showing the Lone Ranger series again? I turned it on. Wow, there's the Lone Ranger and Tonto and Hi-Oh, Silver, and away. And I was excited because I remember watching that before. But the idea of a Lone Ranger is sometimes that you do things by yourself. You don't need anybody else. And I guess God could have developed his idea of interacting with his people, with his creation, mano a mano, one-on-one. -on -one. 
But for some reason, God decided that he wouldn't want just one-on-one. He wanted a congregation. And he called, yes, he did, he called Abraham to follow him. But Abraham's blessings and promise was that he would have children, and those children would be, become more numerous than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, and he would build up a nation, a people. And he called that nation of people a congregation. People gathered together to worship him and serve him, and he would lead them. And he said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. He didn't say my individual fan or my non-participating person, but he said, you will be my people. And that carries on into the New Testament because Jesus told us that he had a congregation. And because of his death on the cross, that congregation would become the new family of God. And all these images are being used to talk about the fact that we are a church. We're called to be an individual Christian who ministers, worship, grows, exists, and lives within the body of Christ. And I know we talk about the universal church. There's all these believers. You can walk around the other side of the world and somebody who knows Christ as your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ, you're part of God's family. But he also put in us the desire to be a local body of believers. A local body of believers. And the question is, that's great, but what does God expect of us to do? There are three things that I think we need to learn here that are the very basic principles of body life. And those three things then lead us to kind of consider expectations. Now, we're not going to lay out all the expectations that maybe providence needs to have. Actually, that's what's supposed to be done in the transitional process. We can talk about those expectations. But I want to share with you uh, what Thomas Rayner suggested, and I'm going to try and give you a couple of very practical things that I'd like to suggest about what are we expected to do as a church member? How do we function in the body of Christ? Okay, number one, we learn from Paul that the church is one body. Now, there could be a lot of groups in a church, but ultimately the church is one body. Let's look in chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Paul said, for just as the body is one, and he's picking up the image of a body, and has many parts, well, there's hands, feet, eyes, nose, ears, and so forth, and all the parts of the body, though many are one body, so is Christ. Now that is a profound statement because it makes us consider, well, how is Christ the body? Well, Jesus is the head of the body, and we are the parts of the body. We're part of his family. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. In other words, there's all kinds of diversity of people who come in the power of the Holy Spirit to know Christ, to be saved by him, and to participate and become part of his body. And we were all given one spirit to drink. In other words, he talks about the nourishing of the spirit, the drinking in of the spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. So here's what you have. You have all these diverse people 
But they come to one faith in Christ. He talks about this in another letter. One faith in Christ, one understanding of the death of Jesus on the cross, one salvation, one Lord, one Savior, and one God, the Father, and one Holy Spirit that gives us power and strength and helps us to go on. So you know what? That unifies us. We're not a bunch of separate people, even though people, Christian people, try to think we are. And only Baptists, by the way, you know, are going to be in heaven. But I found out that that's over a separate part, and they got it walled up. And we're, we're behind. So anyway, the point is, we all become part of the body of Christ. No matter who we are, what we look like, what our experiences have been, where we live, we all become part of God's family. And Paul is suggesting that this represents the body life. And that's a pretty neat thing. We talk about body life. How do we live together? It's one thing to walk as an individual Christian. It's another thing to learn how to mature to deal with each other. I think that's one of the things that the world has really a trouble with. You know, lately, the only kind of argument is the argument from, that's called ad hominem. I don't know if you know anything about propaganda or rhetoric, but ad hominem means if you don't have anything to say in, in terms of your argument, you attack the other person. So it seems like all these politicians and all these people out there are very quick just to attack, attack, attack. Attack personally someone rather than lay out their arguments and understanding on the table and calmly talk about them. So one of the things I think the world doesn't know how to do is how to live in body life. And the reason why they can't is because they don't have one Savior. They, they, they don't have one God. They pledge allegiance to a whole bunch of other gods and ideas and self-centeredness. And they don't have one Holy Spirit that is a unifying Savior. He doesn't have one group over here and another group over there and they fight each other. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be one body of believers. We are called to be his body of believers here at Providence Baptist Church. So we need to remember this theology. We're not, it's not me against you. It's us in the Holy Spirit seeking to serve God. And when that happens, we get that picture, then there's no personal territory. There's no personal power. There's no personal treasure that one individual has in any organization that names the name of Jesus Christ. It's all for him. It's all unified through the Holy Spirit and all for the purpose of worshiping God and glorifying him. And that's God's strategy. And if we want to be essential, we want to be essential to God. I know that we said that we want to be an essential church, meaning that we're essential to society and to each other. But ultimately, we need to be essential to God because he trumps everything else. And I don't mean that as a political reference in any way. He really does overcome, overcome all of the other views and ideas because our job is to worship God and be part of his body, part of his family in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul is telling us, that the church is one body, not several bodies, one body. And we need to remember that goal of unity. Well, what if you can't come to unity? Then you got to keep praying. Because if you can't come to unity about a subject, then God's not ready for us to decide it. We need to trust his timing, his strategy, and his ways. But the church is always meant to seek him, to seek the leadership of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It's not the fads of church growth movement or the individual doctrines that people argue about or any individual whatsoever. It's all about Jesus, all about being part of his body and the expectations arise out of that. But we got to remember, as Paul said, that the body is one. The church is one body. And all the parts of the body, though many, are one body. This is what Jesus Christ intended for us to understand. Second thing is that there are many parts in the one body. Now this is interesting because there's two different ways we can talk about those parts. And I've preached this sermon several times in different places because of this is a great passage of scripture. And a lot of times I, I focus on diversity here. And that's true because the body life is a diversity life. We don't look all alike. We don't think all the same. And God knows we don't want to do that because we'd be so dull in status and status and it would be so terrible and boring in here. But God made us different. And, but he made us to be part of the church for a reason, and we all function in the church, but we're not all alike. Diversity is essential, whether that's diversity of, of social status, income, race, all these different things. We become one in Christ, and we need to recognize that and accept that, and not say, as Paul is going to go down through here, and not say or dismiss someone else because they're not like us. But there's another point to make here, and that's the point of functioning. And I'm going to talk more about that. Both of these are very important here, but functioning is another one. I'm not yet on three, so, <laughs> okay. Here we go. Let's look at verse um, 14. Indeed, the body is not part, one part, but many. And then he goes on to give this illustration of the parts of the body and the way they relate to each other. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, is it not for that reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, is it not for that reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? In other words, we need a nose. But as it is, God has arranged, and verse 18 is a very important verse, but as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he desired or he wanted. That means God put you here. And he wants you here. And he has reasons for you being here. And we're calling people who God is calling to be here to join together with us to serve as the body. Verse 19, if they were all the same part, where would the body be? Can you imagine a body full of foots, feet? How do you say that, feet? Eyes. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. That's verse 20. 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, the rest of verse 24, God has put the body together together, 
giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One member is honored, all the honor, all the members rejoice with it. Now, Paul said here that there are a lot of parts in the body, and as I mentioned, I tend to talk about the diversity that we should celebrate. But if we talk about the functioning of the body, the question is, how can the body function as a body if it doesn't have a part? What happens if you miss a part? Well, in our own human experience, we suggest that you are disabled. So you don't have a leg, you don't have a hand, you're missing some part of the body. We, we talk about being disabled, and you know what we do? We, we honor that, and we, we try to help to overcome that disability. But what happens if a part is missing? Well, if a person has a part missing, they cannot function like someone who would have that part. And so we often help them out with either these things, prosthesis is what they call them, hand, leg, wheelchair, whatever, because they can't function in the way the body would function, so we help them to function in a different way, and we care for them to do that. Paul is trying to argue that the many parts make a healthy body. In other words, you have to have all these parts to be a body. If you don't have any of these parts, then you can't function as a body. And of course he says, look, you can't get self-centered and say, I'm an eye and I don't need you, or I'm an ear. He says everything God put in the body, he put there to function as a good body, as a functioning organization, a, a thing that accomplishes what it was created for. So God made us to be humans, but he created the church to be a body. And we all have different parts. Diversity is there, yes. But guess what? God put those parts there to help us function as a body. So what I would like to say about that is if you're here and you felt called to be a member here, guess what? God put you here <laughs> to function, to help the body be what he wants the body to be. And you got to think about that. I once pastored a little church, and I went to an associational meeting and met with a bunch of other pastors. You know, we pastors get a little bit itchy about how many people we have, and pastorally speaking, how much we count, who were there on Sunday morning, and our budget, and all these kinds of stuff. And one less than generous pastor in the association said, oh, you pastor that church, they're a bunch of misfits. Then I got kind of mad. And I went back to the church, and I was thinking about that statement, and I said, you know what, that's okay. If we are a church of misfits, God put us here. So these misfits can do what God wanted us to do. Well, that year, we actually were third in the association in baptisms. Because we went out to find, guess what? Other misfits to fit us together. Because we needed all of those people to be the body. And God blessed that church. And it was, it was, it was very interesting. There's another long, longer story about that, but I'll stop at that point. Um, 
God put us in the church to be what he needs here in the church to be. So the question is, if you're coming to be a part of this church, uh, be part of this church, if you are part of this church, the question is, well, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to be? Paul said here, but in fact, in verse 18, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So we need to celebrate the variety, but we also recognize that we're interrelated. And when one part suffers, the other parts suffer. When one part is honored, all of the parts are honored. You see, we need each other. We need each other to function well. I, I, would, I would be disabled if I didn't have two feet, or if I was missing an ear or an eye. We need each other to be an essential church. The churches that are essential, that people recognize as being essential, recognize that they're all in this together. And they've experienced what it means to be in this together so they can share expectations. This is what we do because we're the church. This is what we do because God put us here. This is what we do because this is our essential function in our church. And we celebrate each and every one. We, we love each other and we seek the unity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because we recognize we're all needed. Well, yes, what about those dishonorable parts? You know, the ones that we want to hide in layers of clothing or makeup or something. What? Sorry about that, ladies. But I just want to see if you were awake. Anyway, um, what, and then a lot of paint, you know? We paint things, we, we do things, we hide things. What about those? Well, Paul says they're important too because even, even the expectation of ministry together is that as we're functioning as a church, we're bringing in those who need to learn about the church, who need to hear the gospel, who once they come to know Christ, need to grow and mature as deeper believers. And so we're sharing that together as part of it. We need each other to be an essential, an essential church. The expectation of service and growth is, is there because this is what God wants the church to be. It's not just, it's by all means not a country club. God has called us to be, you can talk about these, the hospital, the lighthouse, reaching out into the world to offer them the truth of the gospel, the hope of our Savior. And that's our job. So what if we're diverse? So what if we're misfits? God put us here because this is what he wants. And that's why I ask people, do you feel not just that you have come to Christ, but God is drawing you here? And I challenge people not just to come here so we can rack up another number or another use of the baptismal pool. I want people to come here that God calls to service in the essential body of believers here at Providence Baptist Church. That's what I think Paul wants. That's what I think Jesus wants. That's what I think God is leading us to because he tells us that we are called to be important. Number three, the reason we're called is that each part has a function to play in verses 27 through 31. Now, this is where Paul gets to where he talks a little bit of churches, churches, the language of the church. But we can understand what he's saying. In verse 37, I'm sorry, verse 27, 
Now you are the body of Christ. He's speaking to that church at Corinth and through God's grace and the word of God, he's speaking to us. Now you're the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. And of course, these are part of the issues that they had at the church at Corinth and they're struggling with. And God, and Paul is saying, God appointed the different reasons, the different levels of ministry, the different things to do. But then he says, and he gives a series of rhetorical questions that are to be answered in um, the, uh, the negative. Are all apostles? Well, no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all do miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak other tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. He says, well, of course not. We're all different, but God has placed people in there. He says, but I tell you what, there is one thing that all church members need to do. One thing that they all need to function with. And he starts that in verse 31, but desire the greatest gifts, the gifts that honor God, the gifts that present the message of the gospel, the gifts that show the world what our Savior Jesus is all about, what he did. And then he says, and I will show you an even better way. And then he starts in the verse, uh, chapter 13, which is the chapter on love. But you understand, together as a church, we're called to be different, to do different things with a unity and with a love that makes the world stand up and recognize that makes the world note that there's something different about us, that there's something different about us as individual believers. But when you get us together in the church, well, there's something really different about us. That's where we function through the power of the Holy Spirit and become the church that God wants us to be. That's very important to ask those questions. And he goes on to talk about apostles, prophets, teachers. We get hung up on that, but that's just those titles that they're struggling with and that we need to think about in terms of what are some of the tasks. There are people who need to be healers and helpers and administrators and those who need to be witnesses and those that need to be teachers and, and, and all of those things. Of course, the greatest love of all is God's love. But when Paul says that each part has a function to play, he's still understanding that the church as a body must work together. It must function together. Everyone must have a job. You know, I used to say, if you don't work, you don't eat. Well, if we don't serve, we, we may not grow deeper in Christ. In other words, the maturity level that we reach at, I think somehow is connected to how we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and the Holy Spirit is able to fill us by using us and we begin to serve and work and all of the church, all of the body stands up as a wonderful testimony to our Savior, to God, to our Savior Jesus Christ. That's God's strategy. So we need to recognize that when we go through things in the church, the hard things, remember I said the world doesn't know how to deal with hard problems. But God is teaching us how to maturely deal with all different kinds of issues. And so we mature in learning how... I, I preached a couple of sermons on how to have a, a good fight, remember? The church people should know how to disagree in a loving way that honors God. And the world doesn't know how to do that. 
The world cuts to the quick and attacks other people. But we need to say, well, you're, you're a person of worth. Whether you, I agree with you, whether, you know, and it's okay if I know that you're wrong. <laughs> but if I, if I disagree with you, okay, you're still a person of worth. And Jesus died on the cross for you. And rather than me change your mind, I would rather let God, through the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, lead you to what he wants you to be. See? And, and the point is that we do this together as a body. So here, here comes the final things. We've got a few more minutes. Tom Rainer wrote a book, I Am a Church Member. I think some of you may have gone through that. We're going to give copies to every church member who recently joined and those we baptized. I think I gave one away already, but I'm going to make sure everybody has it. Now, in that book, it's a very short little book, he talks about six pledges that a church member would make to be an effective, growing, functioning church member. Six things. So I'm going to run over their real, these real quick, and then I'm going to run over the seven things I think at a minimum, you should be doing, okay? So number one, uh, uh, you need to be a functioning church member. In other words, you can't be a fan. You sit up in the back and just clap, and then you go home. You have to function. If you want to get the best out of being a church member and this church to be essential, learn how to function, how to serve in the church. So he says, one pledge is to be a fun I pledge to be a functioning church member. Secondly, I pledge to be a unifying church member as well. In other words, our purpose is to unify ourselves together behind Jesus Christ, behind God and his strategy, and together we're going to serve him to give him glory and honor. And we're going to be unified in doing it, seeking his face and his hope and the whole power of the Holy Spirit to bring us together as a team, not as individual players. I mean, I just watched a little thing on a basketball game and it was obvious that one guy did all the shots right and the rest of the team members just stood around well that's not a team we want to be a team together i pledge to be a unifying church member third he said i pledge to be um, a selfless church member what that means is that you're not seeking your own self and your own self-centeredness in the church. A lot of people come in, well, I'm going to determine the color of the carpet. I'm going to determine what we do. But we don't do it that way. So we need to be a selfless church member, not self-serving, but a unit. No lone rangers. Even the lone ranger had to have Tonto get him out of bad situations and scraps. But we need to be willing to set ourselves and our preferences and our ideas even if we think they're the most ludicrous, ridiculous things to do, we're going to let the church decide to seek God's leadership and the church better learn how to do that to make decisions that glorify Jesus Christ and glorify God. Um, fourth, I'm going to be a praying church member. I pledge to be a praying church member. That means I'm going to pray for my pastor. I'm going to pray for my fellow church members. I'm going to pray for the leaders. I'm going to pray that God's will through the power of the Holy Spirit will have freedom of movement to guide and energize our church to be what God wants it to be. Not what I want it to be, not what other people want it to be, but that God would be glorified and raised up as our sovereign God in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord and Savior. Number five, 
that I will be a family-oriented church member. What that means, I will understand in the best way that my church body is a family. Now, dysfunctional humans have weird views of what the family is sometimes. I'm not saying that we take our families and make that the model and the image for what we think the church is. I'm saying we want to have the family of God from God's perspective to know what it means to be a real family, okay? And that means we don't do what we used to do because we used to always do it. We do what God wants us to do because that's how he wants to glorify his family and raise us as part of his family. So I want to do that as a family-oriented church member, but on the other hand, I want my family to participate. In other words, I'm going to try everything I can to get my family here to make this their church. So I'm going to lead my family members of worship to come with us to be a unit of this church, of this body of Christ in Jesus Christ, serving God to the best of our abilities. You'll want your family to worship, pray, and serve right here in your church. That's what God is calling us to do. Uh, Tom Rayner says that's one of the pledges that we will seek to even grow our own family by helping them come and worship here. Number six he says that we should have a pledge of being a thankful or grateful church member. That, that means that not only is our salvation a gift from our God, from our Savior, but also is the ability to be involved in a church that serves God a gift. We should never take it for granted. We should always be thanking God for the church family, for the church as we seek the strategy of God to know what he wants us to do and then doing it and be thankful that this is God's gift to us. Think about it. You've got a wonderful God, a tremendous Savior. You've got a handbook and a group of people to live it out in. See, God, God's, he, he thinks of everything. He, he's not letting us out on our own. He's giving us every opportunity to be successful in what matters for time and eternity. Not what the world says, but what he says is going to bless us. And the interesting thing is God turns around and blesses his servants as we seek to follow him. And he's given us a church body, as well as the Bible, as well as Jesus Christ. It's amazing what God has done. All right, so I'm going to pledge also to be, as I said, never take my church for granted but to thank God for it in a regular way and ask God to bless it and lift it up. All right, the last thing I want to do, and I know I'm just a few minutes past time, but I just want to give you seven things uh, that I think if you do these things, this is appropriate functioning. Now, these are more practically specific oriented than the pledges. Um, we can get more of those books. I'm a church member. If you want to go through it, we have several in the church office. We can give them to you. We're going to be giving a copy to every family that has come recently to join the church, and we'll be getting those out. But here's some things. One, attend, and I think these make us an essential church. Faithfully attend worship. Be here in worship. This is the way God leads us and grows us. Be here in worship. Secondly, attend a weekly Bible study. Now, it doesn't have to be on Sunday morning here at the church. It could be somewhere else during the week. But make sure you're in the study of the Word of God weekly. All right? 
That will, by the way, lead you to a personal Bible study time in your growth with the Lord. But one of the things related to the church, attend a weekly Bible study. And if you don't have something to go to, we'll help you invent one and make one. And we'll give you and help you do it. But attend a weekly Bible study. Number three, attend two special studies per year. So when the men's or the women's Bible study groups get together, try to be in two of those because they pick off some subjects that they do that are, that are there. It's a little different than being in a regular Bible study every week, but attend two of those special studies a year. You should do that. And then number uh, four, do at least one, if not two, mission projects. You know, amen, right? Two or three. Go do the Builders for Christ. Go do the missions projects. Make sure you do that one or two times a year. Be a, part a participant in that. And that could be VBS. It could be um, all of the different things our church does. Be a part of it. And I don't mean just go to it. I mean volunteer to participate in it. So you can help and serve the church that way and learn. Number five... Give your tithe to the church. I'm not talking a little dribble of money once in a while. I mean, pray about whether you need to give a tithe of what the Lord has given to you and give it to the church. I believe myself in storehouse tithing, and I think we need to give it to the church so the church can turn around and use it for God's glory. But I think you need to give it to the church. Number six, I think to be a functioning church member, you've got to show up at church business meetings. I'm sorry, but that's really, you've got to know what's going on. And you need to be here and, and make your voice heard prayerfully. Get together in those knockout, drag out business meetings and then Baptists and go to them and participate. I think that's really a, a long way to, to help, help you be a functioning church member. And number seven, the last thing is to share your faith by inviting people to come to church or witnessing to them or being part of what I call the evangelism team. The evangelism team is getting people to worship. It's inviting people to Bible study, whether it's weekly or the special Bible study. Wherever they may hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ, your job, you don't always have to tell them in all details, argue with them about it. What you need to do is share the gospel with them or help them hear the gospel. And you know what? God takes over for their and the Holy Spirit has a lot more ability and power than we do. And you'd be amazed at how individuals need to hear the gospel and, and God will speak to them. God said, I will not send out my word in vain, but it will accomplish the purpose that I sent for it. And so if we get people to worship, if we get people to Bible study, if we get people to hear the gospel message, God will work in their hearts. I think Providence Baptist Church has the opportunity. It's already done this in many, many, many different ways. But we have the opportunity to really be considered essential. But we need to know what God expects us to be. He expects us to be part of the body. He expects us to know that we're different and we have many parts. He expects us to recognize that we have to function as a body. We can't walk if we don't have feet. We can't minister if we don't have hands. We can't recognize the needs if we don't have eyes or ears to hear people who are brokenhearted and who need Christ Jesus as the Lord. None of this can happen unless we're functioning church members. Please don't take your church membership for granted.
But let's praise God and glorify him for what he's done. We're going to have an invitation. I'm going to ask the musicians if they'll come forward, how great thou art. God is a great God. He's a wonderful God. And the interesting thing, we can give him praise and glory for the way that he put together his, his whole functioning strategy. It's not you get Jesus to save you and live whatever and do whatever you want to want to do, maybe even get dunked in the pool and then live your life and one day get to heaven. That's not part of, uh, that's a part of our gospel, but it's not the only part. In fact, I would suggest it's not even the deepest part. The deepest part is walking daily with that Savior who died on the cross, has risen again, and through the power of the Holy Spirit as he teaches us to live, in a way that glorifies him and in turn he blesses us beyond our wildest dreams of how to know what matters for time and eternity. Let's stand and sing.